You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. So it's October here in Northern California, and we're taking advantage of the warm fall days to get in as much beach time as possible before the days shorten and it gets chillier. And when we plan trips to the coast, we often are using the sandy beach to plop our stuff on, dig and play, gaze out on the ocean, or use it as an entry point to get into the ocean. Seabirds utilize this habitat in search of sand critters and the swash zone where organisms wash up, and pinnipeds like elephant seals and harbor seals utilize sandy beaches to give birth and raise their pups. So while sea level rise threatens coastlines, all around the world, making our beaches narrower or drown them altogether, another unseen threat is looming at impacting these sandy environments, and it's not being talked about. Sand mining is taking a toll around the world. And on today's show, I'll be talking with Dr. Aurora Torres, who is a research fellow at the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research and Martin Luther University Halle Wittenberg. Her research has a true transdisciplinary character in the sense of problem orientation to real-world problems and cross-disciplinary adaptation of methods. Since July 2015, she's leading and coordinates a pioneer working group with scientists from Michigan State University, Boise State University, and Georgia University that aims at providing an integrative perspective on global sand use and the long-distance environmental and socioeconomic interactions between sand extraction and consumption. This research bridges gaps between different research fields from social to natural sciences, and the team is open to considering new collaborations, as well as engaging with policymakers and practitioners. So I'm going to put some music on just for a few minutes while we wait for Aurora to call in. She's calling us from Germany. So stand by, and we'll be diving into this topic of sand mining. everyone. You're tuned to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. This is Jennifer Stock. And earlier, I introduced the show and our topic today of sand mining and this very complex topic. And we are very lucky, lucky to have Dr. Aurora Torres joining us today from Germany. And uh, Aurora, you are live on KWMR. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for the invitation to join the conversation. Well, and thank you for joining us with a quite a time difference. I know it's rather late in your day in Germany, so thank you again for making the time. Uh, you're welcome. It's fine. So I really want to uh, start kind of broad and then and talk. This is such a very complex topic. Where, how did you get into this area of study regarding sand and sand mining? 
Well, it's quite surprising, actually, because if anyone checks the profiles of the authors of this paper, uh, you are not going to find a sedimentologist, a geomorphologist. Actually, my background is in road ecology and landscape ecology. So in my PhD, I have studied the impacts of intensive human land uses like urban sprawl, road development, or agricultural intensification. And before, I used to focus on what happened when you built a road or a, build, or a uh, built up area in the immediate environment. But I realized that that it was only part of the story because what is going on with the resources that are needed for construction? So two years ago, uh, the co-authors of this work, we met in a conference in, uh, in Portland, I think it was, and we started to think of these challenges and especially focus on the long-distance interactions between sand mining areas and the consumption points. Wow. So we're talking about sand that's construction is one of the uses that it's used for. But um, what are the, some of the other uses that sand is mined for from coastal and ocean areas? Well, sand is actually a resource that, like water, is almost on every aspect of our daily lives. And as you said, the construction is the most dominant driver of the increase in sand demand because sand is a key ingredient for concrete, asphalt, glass, electronics. But we also require massive amount of sand for, for example, beach renourishment programs to combat erosion, which will become more and more important with sea level rising in the next years. And sometimes it's not only to combat erosion, but to meet the expectations of the tourists of idyllic sandy beaches. And at the same time, we are in moments of escalating transformations in the land-sea interface as a result of growing coastal population, land scarcity, and geopolitical issues that need massive amount of sand to create new land, for example, like in Singapore. And sand is also extracted even for energy production, and this is a big thing in the, in the U.S. And sand is required as, uh, for the process of hydraulic fracturing because it is one of the propans to fracture the rock and to keep the fracture open and being able to extract the sail gas. So sand mining for fracking has rapidly expanded during many areas of the U.S. in the last year, like in Wisconsin, and it has also raised environmental and social concerns, landowners and small communities in those areas. So these are basically the four main drivers of the increase in sand demand that we described, but there are many more uses, and as I said, it's almost every aspect of our daily lives that requires sand. Being that it is something that touches our daily lives, why do you think that it just has not hit the radar in terms of global awareness uh, of it being overmined and causing so many problems? Yeah, well, it's an aspect that I find really fascinating. I think uh, one of the problems is that when we think of sand, we think that sand is everywhere and is available for all of us. But actually, all, not all sand is suitable for construction. And many people, when see when saw this paper for the first time, they were pointing to the Sahara Desert and saying, why is it possible that sand is becoming increasingly scarce if we have massive amounts of desert sand? But what they don't know is that uh, desert sand is actually not very suitable for construction in general because it creates a concrete of poor strength 
because of the erosion of the wine that makes the grains of sand smoother uh, and thinner than other more irregular grains of sand from rivers or coastal areas. And we also have the option to mix this not very suitable sand with other substances like acids or other materials. But then the production of sand becomes more expensive, it requires more energy, and it also increases the uh, greenhouse gases emissions. So it's not really a very good alternative. I think this idea of sand being an infinite resource is one of the key elements that uh, has contributed to sand increasingly scare becoming under the radar. Sand is a production of erosion of rocks and is made over long periods of time. I'm assuming we're taking it out much quicker than it's possibly being made. Is, is that correct? Yeah, well, the thing is that and we are very cautious in our paper, and we, we don't say loudly that sand is a global scarce resource at the global scale. We know that there are many areas that are running out of sand and in which sand is becoming increasingly scarce. The problem of the global scale is that we are missing the numbers. We don't have the numbers to say how much sand is produced and extracted. So I think this is one of the directions that we are need, that we really need to develop in the next years. Uh, but, but yeah, my feeling is that with the current extraction rates of sand, it's impossible uh, that sand is a, can be considered as a renewable resource. Where is sand mining taking place? So in general, the best uh, quality of sand is the sand that we found in areas close to rivers and also in coastal areas and there are also some sand pits that are not so close to rivers and other process that is very common in countries like Spain, the country that I'm originally from. What they do in Spain is crushing stones uh, to produce this sand. It's more expensive than extracting the sand directly, but it can be an alternative for areas that have the suitable types of rocks. And also because of uh, some mining bands in rivers and coastal areas, uh, some mining is moving towards offshore areas. And this is something that, for example, is happening in, in Germany. So I've seen actually some technology developing of deep sea seabed mining where they send down these really giant robots and the technology is getting greater and greater and they're able to go to areas and can stay underwater for long periods of time. Is this part of your study as well in terms of some of this deep sea mining that's away from the coast and somewhat unseen? Yeah, well, it's something that we have considered in this paper. We talk about the environmental effects of some mining. We also consider the impacts that it may have in uh, coral reefs or seaweed, seagrass meadows. So, yeah, we are counting on this. We are considering this. The problem is that there are not so many studies made until now because Sand mining offshore has not been so common before and is very new, and then there are not many papers reporting about these effects. But some people are suggesting that these might be, may have linkages with uh, fishing and with other activities that are affecting human systems. So it can be a big deal, and it's something that needs to be looked in detail. And there are another thing that 
we need to consider in this type of operation because depending on the intensity, they may have reversible or irreversible effects in the environmental system. It's, it's quite complex, but we need to focus on that. Excellent. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Dr. Aurora Torres, and she's calling in from Germany, and we're talking about sand mining that's happening globally. So you are talking about a systems integration approach with your team. Can you talk a little bit about this systems integration approach? Well, we, we are applying this system integration approach because what we found at the beginning when we started to study this area of research is that we have very different pieces of the puzzles, but they were not connected. So until now, the research literature has been largely fragmented, and we have papers in sedimentology, remote sensing, uh, social issues, but there, there was nothing connecting all these pieces. And this is a perfect scenario to apply system integration approaches, which is a very and interdisciplinary perspective that tries to identify all the systems involved. So in the case of sand mining, we can think, of course, of the sand extraction area, but we have also the consumption areas that sometimes are not so close to this extraction. And in the transportation of sand to the extraction, to the consumption point, we might be affecting other systems, for example, via the spread of invasive species. And this framework helps to identify all these long-distance environmental and uh, socioeconomic interactions between systems. And they have been previously applied to other very complex issues like food security or biofuels. So we thought that this might be a good opportunity to start applying this to get a better understanding of the system and then to move forward and start quantifying all these effects and interactions and achieve uh, sustainable extraction strategies. So is this a study that takes place over a year or two years? It sounds very, very complex. Yeah, exactly. So it has taken two years of reading and synthesizing a lot of information and connecting all these passes and also something that we wanted to do because previous to this work there has been quite a lot of uh, articles in the media. And actually, it's, it's fascinating to me that the media have actually, the media and the journalists have been the ones raising awareness of this issue. But if something that we were watching is the evidence behind many of the statements that we found in these type of articles. So we have been examining very carefully all the literature and really assessing the evidence and the support for saying that sand mining, extraction, uh, destruction and trade have significant environmental and socioeconomic effects. So let's talk about a region that has really shown a, a huge growth in sand mining in terms of production or consumption. Is there a specific area in the world behind this issue in, in terms of its escalation? And Well, yeah, there is a, a region, actually. We can think of Asia and Africa also as the areas where the sand mining is now progressing faster and it's having more effects in the human and environmental systems. And the perfect example of this is India, 
war because of the urban expansion and transport infrastructure expansion in the last decades. This has increased a lot the demand for sand to the point that sand mining has become a very profitable business and it has contributed to the creation of what has been recognized as sand mafias in charge of the extraction of sand and also with linkages with the government in some areas. Actually, something that everyone can do is to check for the Google update, the, the alert, if you put some mining, and then every day you will receive many news coming from India reporting conflicts related to sand mafias like murders, raids, and all kinds of conflicts. And to the point that hundreds of people have been killed in the recent years in India because of sand wars and conflicts between the sand mafias and local populations. Wow. So really, the consequences go way beyond environmental as well. There's quite a social impact as well that's happening. How about in Vietnam? I was reading that Vietnam is really at a crisis point. They're losing sand, so dramatically so that there's like hardly any left. Yeah, actually, the case of the of Vietnam is one of the cases that we usually comment to support the this fact that sun is becoming increasingly scarce because during this summer, the Ministry of Construction in Vietnam declared that by 2020, they may run out of sand for construction because they are depleting their national reserves at a rate that the deposits are not able to replenish. And it's also is in part because of the consumption of sand inside the country to support this urban development, but it's also for the contribution of sand mining trade because Vietnam is, for example, one of the countries that has been exporting sand to other countries nearby, like Singapore, which is the main global importer at this point. So Singapore is developing rapidly, I take it. Yeah, exactly. And it's not only that it's developing quickly, it's that the surface of Singapore is increasing because of land reclamation projects. So the surface of Singapore has increased by 20% in the last years. And to create more land, you need sand to create concrete and new areas for construction. So then you need massive amounts of sand. And then they have been importing sand from Malaysia, Cambodia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and other countries nearby. And this has led to geopolitical conflicts in the area. Because sometimes some countries have claimed Singapore of being getting sand illegally. The countries that are most affected by this, are there any regulations in the, on the continent or in the country itself in terms of the extraction or the export of sand? Are there any regulations at all in these countries? Well, it depends on the area. There are like several problems. It's not only a matter of regulation. So in general, regulation in these areas is very poor, but sometimes it's not so poor, but it's not enforced. And also... So something that happened in most of these areas is that illegal sand extraction is very common because sand is a, what we call an open pool resource that's open to all. You cannot imagine putting a fence to, to sand. It is really difficult to, to regulate and to monitor. So in these areas, it's not only a matter of regulation, but of a lack of enforcement. Also reporting, they may not be reporting as much as actually is taking place. 
Yeah, and there, there is also one of the big problems trying to understand this challenge, and is that sun is one of these resources that is commonly underreported in global statistics, well, global and national statistics. So this makes our task most difficult. Another point that is very important to consider for the sustainability of the extraction of sand is to have a very good knowledge of what we call the sand budget, which is basically to know how much sand is being naturally replenished and how much sand is being extracted of the system to, to, in order to think about sustainable extraction rates. And this is missing for most of these areas. I'm really curious, on the east coast of the United States, there's this barrier island ecology where there's these offshore little islands of sand. Of course, they're completely submerged, but the idea is over time, geologic time, these sand islands somewhat turn over themselves, and it's a really important part of the ecology of these islands. Are there areas like that, too, that are affected by sand mining? And Yeah, well, we have to think of coastal systems as, as- dynamic systems and in some areas sand is removed naturally and then in a few years sand is recovered naturally and yeah this come on very often and but sometimes in many areas we want to have the perfect beaches with the perfect amount of sand all the year for our tourists so sometimes we increase our need for sand for these replenishment programs instead of waiting for these areas to recover naturally. Also, after a lot of these big disasters like hurricanes or tsunamis, that sand replenishment is creating a huge demand as well. Yeah, it's one of the key elements that uh, that have a very clear effect in the demand of sand. And some, somewhere in which we have seen this very clearly is in Sri Lanka, which is also a very interesting country and have all, most of the elements that we have liked in the paper, they are happening in Sri Lanka. And, for example, a recent report has concluded that the tsunami in the Indian Ocean tsunami that happened in 2004 had more intensive effects because of the extensive extraction of sand that was going on in the coast before the tsunami. And after that, this has significantly increased the demand for sand, which makes things uh, more difficult in the future. So the problem for the next years is that all these activities that are demanding sand are going to increase. Erosion is going to become a bigger thing, and the same with urban development. So we really need to start thinking about strategies and improve the, the research, the quality and the amount of research that we are doing in this area. So your work with this systems integration is really critical at this time. And are you one of the only teams looking at this? This is a cross-cutting international team as it is. Are there other teams working on this issue or are you hoping to build your team? Well, so what I can tell is that we are a pioneer working group, the only working group that is now trying to provide this integrative perspective to the global sand supply and demand. And, yeah, one of the things that we want to do in the next years is to increase the interdisciplinarity of our team because this is an area of research that is so complex that we are going to need people with many different profiles. 
And until now, we are all from ecology with different backgrounds, but at the end, we are all ecologists. So we are starting to contact experts in other areas of research and also even from art disciplines to start thinking about governance strategies, global and budgets, and all the key elements that we think that should be key in the next years. And so, yeah, we are we are hoping to take in the lead in this. And what we wanted with this paper was to present this challenge to the global community. But now we, there are several works going on for the next um, months and years that are going deeper in many of the topics that we highlight in the paper. Excellent. In terms of what are you recommending at this point that could possibly be done to slow down this issue in terms of extraction and this demand for sand? There are several things that can be done. I'm a bit cautious talking about alternatives because this is a resource that is used in in massive amounts. So if we are going to think about an alternative, we need to guarantee that it's not going to be worse than the current damage that is causing the destruction of this resource. But something that can be done, for example, is increasing the efficiency of sand use and trade. So we are promoting and encouraging recycling policies and avoiding waste along the supply chains. And this is something that, for example, in Europe is getting more and more success. And in countries like Europe, uh, the recycling of construction materials is becoming a big proportion of of the cake. And uh, so this is not enough. We also need to think about coordination among multiple national and international policies and establishing controls on destruction, trade, and monitoring of the sand mining and trade. So, yeah, regulations from the global scale to the local scales, international conventions. So we really need to start giving the steps to this global sand governance. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and we are talking with Aurora Torres and talking about sand mining globally and the, the rates that it's happening and the destruction that it's causing all around the world. Are there alternatives for building materials in terms of this specific sand grain? Are there other types of alternatives that could be used besides sand? Well, there, uh, apart from crushing stones that I mentioned at the beginning, there are many research teams across the world uh, trying to find innovative alternatives to sand. And some of them might be useful at a local scale. What happens in most of the cases is that it becomes the process becomes more expensive, it requires more energy, and it increases the pollution. So we need to make more developments in the area to be able to find alternatives that can be implemented at a large scale, and not only for the countries that have the technology to do that, because the main areas where this is having a huge impact now is in Asia and Africa, and we need to guarantee that they are going to have the technology to implement these alternatives. Mm-hmm. You mentioned recycling policies. How is sand possibly recycled, or is it the building materials that you're talking about being recycled? Well, it, it basically comes from the demolition of buildings that are not longer of use. Mm-hmm. 
and yeah, all these structures are crashed. And then I don't have a deep understanding of this, but I think these materials that come from the demolished buildings are somehow mixed with other components to make uh, wood quality concrete and other construction materials. I got it. I see. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all this. It, it's kind of another example of just we're running out of room on our planet for the, the resources that we need to exist and um, competing with the, the natural world as well that also provide us with so many different services. And I learned about it just two years ago, actually, and it was through media that movie Sand Wars came out. And it was the first time I saw that I uh, read about this this issue. And it's just not something I've been reading about a lot. And I think mainly because I'm here in the United States and we have a lot of regulations to protect against sand mining. It's it's not in our face here in the United States. So this is really a big thing that I think the media is helping to tell the story by sharing the photos and the video and, and telling the story. So I'm, I hope that it becomes more prevalent in terms of people understanding this this threat out there and looking at our beaches a little bit differently. Yeah, absolutely. And something very important about the documentary that you mentioned, Sand Wars, mm -hmm. is that it created the basis for the report that was published, I don't know, two years later, more or less, by the United Nations Environmental Program. So it really had an impact. And this is one of the very few reports that we found on the topic. So it really made a difference. And I think until now, the media have been pushing for this, and in the next year, we hope to do the same in the research area. And I think, even though that I said before that most of the impacts are now having place in Asia and Africa, we have examples of impacts of some mining all across the world. And also, in the U.S., there is an area in the Monterey Bay that has been affected for many years for the extensive extraction of sand in the coast, I think for more than 70 years. And finally, my understanding is that the sand mining is going to stop in, the, in 2021 because of the concerns that it has raised in the area. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually wanted to find some local context because uh, along California here, we have four national marine sanctuaries, and the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary is the largest between the Marin County region and San Simeon region. And this plant, I think it's Semex, they operated in Marina uh, Monterey before the California Coastal Commission was established and never applied for permits and permissions to continue beachfront sand mining, like off the beaches. And as time went by, the Coastal Commission was pushing them to apply for permits and the State Lands Commission. And uh, my reading of the articles today is that the California Coastal Commission issued a cease and desist order for them to minimize their operations over the next three years and close the entire operation in the next six years. And the community in Monterey and other experts in this region were seeing these beaches in Monterey diminishing. So there was a lot of local application and people seeing it happen. So this is the last beachfront sand mining company in the United States. So that'll be shutting down in the next six years. So there's some local awareness here, but I'm sure the global awareness in terms of impacting people and this sand mafia you're talking about is a really different scale, too, that we don't necessarily see here in our daily lives in the United States. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And yeah, we need to bring these examples from areas far away to our daily news.
that is happening elsewhere, and it's as equally of concern. When I came here to work for the National Marine Sanctuaries and learning about the regulations and prohibitions we had, I didn't really think that much about the seabed disturbance regulation. I just didn't know that much about seabed disturbances until as time went by and realized we have this protection in place in our National Marine Sanctuary here. There's no disturbance to the seabed, including extraction of sand and seabed materials. So that's a positive and some forward thinking we had here when we were establishing some of these federal marine protected areas along the coast. Any last things you'd like to share with us about this issue and your approach? And I just want to commend you for your international effort to bring together experts to really look at this in the, the cross-disciplinary nature that it is and and starting to, to raise the awareness. But any last things you'd like to share with us? Well, thank you very much. No, I think more or less the main key aspects of this emerging issue are over. I would like to invite anyone that has a question or that want to get more involved into this research to get in touch with me, because as you said before, we are open to considering new collaboration, and we need people from all fields and all areas of research, also from the general public. Is there a specific way people can contact you? Yeah, there is my email address, and they can also follow uh, all the developments in this area in my Twitter account. And that is at Aurora, A-U-R-O-R-A underscore T-O-R-R-E-S-M. And I'm finding Twitter such a useful tool for finding out about information. And I was able to follow you and, and see some of the links that you've been sharing about the information. So it's such a great little aggregator for learning about topics that you're interested in. So thanks for sharing your expertise that way as well. Well, thank you very much. Uh, for me, it's also very useful for my work and to know what is going on in other areas of the planet and also to know about news related to sand mining and, and trade. So it's a, it's a very powerful tool. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us so late in the evening from Germany to share with us about sand mining. And I look forward to following your research and work as, as time goes by. So thank you again for joining us on Ocean Currents. Thank you. I would love to talk to you again in the future. Okay. We'll definitely be in touch. Take care. This was a very complex topic that we were addressing today here on ocean current sand mining that's happening all around the world. And it's something we just don't see in our daily lives. When we go to the beach, we see sand, but there is a, a lot of sand being taken away. And, and the, the U.S. production alone has increased by 24 percent in the last five years. There is a report online that you can look at produced by the USGS, the United States Geological Survey, basically highlights all the mineral commodities that are produced in the United States. It's called the USGS Mineral Commodity Summaries 2017. And it's a report that details all the mineral commodities that are extracted here in the United States. Very easy to just Google it, USGS Mineral Commodity Summaries 2017. So we're going to take a short break. In a few minutes, we'll also be sharing our Positively Ocean episode produced by Liz Fox to share something that's working well for the ocean. We've talked about a pretty big, heavy topic here today, but there are some positive things happening, too. We want to share those, too.
past week, our sanctuary research team with the Cordell Bank and Greater Fairlawns National Marine Sanctuaries, in collaboration with the local nonprofit Point Blue Conservation Science, they celebrated their 50th research cruise in the Cordell Bank and Greater Fairlawns National Marine Sanctuaries just last week. And this is a program that's been going on for 14 years. It's called ACCESS, the Applied California Current Ecosystem Studies Program. And it's really a critical monitoring program that takes the pulse of the ocean conditions in our local national marine sanctuaries and our local ocean off the coast here, which is just one of the hotspot areas for biodiversity around the world, this whole California current ecosystem. So we really want to say thank you to Point Blue Conservation Science and both Cordell Bank and Greater Fairlands National Marine Sanctuaries for continuing to do this work. It's so so important to keep monitoring these areas, especially through the changes that we're talking about a lot here on Ocean Currents. You can learn more about that program at accessoceans.org. And if you're on Facebook, they have a group, a page called Access Partnership, where they share highlights from each of the, the cruises when they come back to shore. And that's kind of a one place I find out exactly what's going on with whales and, and zooplankton and everything that they're catching out there. So check out Access Partnership. Well, I want to take a pause here to play our Positively Ocean episode. Uh, Liz Fox is a volunteer with me, and she is based in Berkeley and curates a story each month to highlight something that's working well for the ocean. So stick around here for Positively Ocean. Hi, this is Liz Fox at Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. Schools are back in session, and students seem to be taking cues from the ocean, like sardine schools that dart about seemingly in unison or orca pods knocking a seal off an ice floe. Whether evading predators or hunting prey, groups of ocean animals investigate their surroundings, communicate, and cooperate their response to ensure the pack's well-being. And now on Alameda Island in the San Francisco Bay, human students do it too, because saving the ocean might help save us. Through NOAA's Ocean Guardian program, students district-wide study environmental science and apply the lessons to their shoreline backyards that are overrun with invasive fennel and Russian thistle. They remove it, sow marsh gum plants in their place, and report back to the herd through presentations to other classes, parents, and district administrators, and at community fairs. Besides the skills they learn conducting science and communicating it, they're building ocean conservation into their personal identities, and it's infectious. Jennifer Hardigan is the Lincoln Middle School teacher who helped bring the program to Alameda in 2013. Her students practice their presentation, and by the end of the year, the whole school knows what the Ocean Guardians are up to. Um, and I love seeing them grow with that. Some students are really interested in taking that challenge and this year, the Alameda Unified School District opened the Ocean Guardian program to elementary and high school classrooms. It's California's second school district to adopt the program, which has grown from a local culture of environmental stewardship and created more. It helps a lot that Alameda is also in a statewide program for environmental literacy. Alameda found that the state's blueprint to help connect students to their local environment coincides nicely with the Ocean Guardian curriculum. 
Seabury Nakbar is at the nexus of the movement. She directs the Ocean Guardian program that she started in 2010 and sits on the committee to design the state's environmental literacy vision. And we've seen over and over again that you know, when kids are provided the opportunity, the knowledge, the resources and the support to make differences, they do. They step up to the plate. So three weeks into the year in a Hardigan's Ocean Guardian class, 7th and 8th grade students brainstorm designs for t-shirts that they'll wear throughout the year. As a young teens clicked and dragged clip art and developed slogans, silence fell over the lab classroom, replacing the awkward jitteriness of lunch period just minutes before. And then oohs and ahs followed the design reveal, and Hardigan reminded students that the final t-shirt would be a group effort, taking bits and pieces of what everyone likes best to create a single logo. And although a shirt may seem like a simple garment to identify Ocean Guardians, it and the program it represents become part of the youth's character. Middle school students are very open to new ideas, so I think if we can connect with them and light a fire at this age, then we can hope to teach the next generation about conservation, about preservation, about the hard work that has to be done. Hardigan says she watches the kids' passion for the environment grow with their understanding. And she's got company. Over seven years, Nakbar has also witnessed the transformation in many of the nearly 48,000 students who have participated in the program. And we see that connection made. The kids are like, oh, I get it. I get it. I understand that I'm on this little creek and that this creek is going to flow to a river and the river is going to flow to the bay and the bay is going to flow to the ocean. It opens up their perspective. But as ocean science demands, Nakbar wanted data that show the yearly difference ocean guardians make. She's tallied the numbers for the life of the program, including more than 400,000 single-use plastic bottles that were spared, or more than 300,000 square feet of non-native plants removed. Besides curriculum support, the Ocean Guardian program provides grants, more than $800,000 to date, to help schools implement their vision. One school was able to buy a new dishwasher to end styrofoam tray use in the lunchroom. And grant funds are especially important for providing transportation and substitute teachers to low-income schools, Nakbar said. Like a lot of these students, the schools that they're in can be less than a mile from the beach, but they, they haven't created that personal connection with the ocean environment, and we're providing them this blue mind. Just getting the kids to the shore may set the ocean up for a brighter future. Researchers in Germany who study schools of fish recently observed individuals' actions and interactions more closely than ever before. Using high-speed cameras and computer models, they concluded that the group's well-being depends on many single creatures exploring, making connections, communicating, and cooperating. And that's an example of folks doing right by the ocean. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio, this is Liz Fox reporting in Alameda, California. And there you have it. Kids are leading the way again through education engaging their school communities and and finding some sustainable solutions to reduce waste and to help habitat through ocean guardian grants. I'll just add for that if there's any, any educators in the in the listening audience here that this ocean guardian grant is an opportunity 
for schools to apply for small grants to help implement these projects. And the time period to keep an eye on is April 2018 for announcement for a call for applications. You can go to sanctuaries.noaa.gov slash education slash Ocean Guardian to get more information. You can also just Google Ocean Guardian Program Sanctuaries to get right to that as well. And it's a really fantastic program, and it's so always fun to hear some of the stories of the different schools of what they're doing. My guest today, Aurora Torres, was mentioning that she's really building this collaborative international team to look at this sand mining issue on the multiple scales that it crosses. And they're building a team and are looking for collaborators to join that team. And maybe you are one of these people that offer something to help with that. The way to contact her that is easy through Twitter is with her Twitter handle at Aurora, A-U-R-O-R-A underscore Torres, T-O-R-R-E-S-M. So she was mentioning the paper that she was just talking about, and it's called A Looming Tragedy of the Sand Commons. You can Google that and also get her direct email through that as well. A Looming Tragedy of the Sand Commons. And that's the article that actually tipped me off to cover this on Ocean Currents. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, uh, 1 to 2 p.m., and we have a Twitter feed. You can follow Ocean, Ocean Currents, and I share out links there uh, from articles that relate to the topics we've talked about on the show here at Ocean KWMR. You can get more information about the program and other things that we're talking about here on this show. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, or comments, please email me, cordellbank at noaa.gov. And thank you so much for listening. Enjoy this ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely in these last few months before later fall hits and winter. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin, KWMR. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.